welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vandorf. Like many cinephiles, I first got into the idea that movies could be more than just like a thing I, I passively took in, that they could be artistic or great through the Oscars, which if you've looked at the list of movies that have won Oscars often seems like kind of a strange idea because a lot of bad movies have won Oscars, but every so often they get it right. I would say last year when they gave it to Moonlight, one of my favorite films of 2016, they definitely got it right. And maybe this year they'll get it right. That's why I keep watching the Oscars. I have a nostalgic attachment to them from when I was just a young kid getting into movies and TV and things like that. And also because every so often they give the award to a movie that really matters and a movie that's going to stand the test of time. So this year, before the Oscars, I wanted to do an Oscar spectacular, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to start with a chat with Vox's film critic Alyssa Wilkinson. We're going to talk about the year's nominees, which you can expect from the show, things like that. Then we're going to talk to the nominated sound designer and sound editor Julian Slater. He worked on the film Baby Driver, which had a terrific use of sound. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And then we're going to wrap up the show by talking to the Oscar-nominated editor of I, Tanya, Tatiana Regal. It's a, it's a really interesting show. I think you're going to enjoy some of our conversations. And if you don't know like what all those categories before the acting categories mean, this is going to be a good way to learn about some of them with some of the people who are nominated. So stick around. This is going to be a spectacular show, an Oscar spectacular show. This week is the I Think You're Interesting Oscar Spectacular. As I mentioned, we're going to talk with some of the actual nominees in a bit, but I thought we'd start the show by discussing with Vox's film critic Alyssa Wilkinson uh, this year's slate of nominees, especially the Best Picture nominees, but also some other things. Alyssa, thank you for stopping by. Thanks for having me. What, uh, what, what of all the nominations, obviously not all of them, but like what was the happiest surprise for you of the things that were nominated? I got really excited about the Best Director slate. So the five nominees are uh, Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, Jordan Peele for Get Out, Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird, Paul Thomas Anderson for Phantom Thread, and Guillermo del Toro for Shape of Water. And one thing that made me really happy about this was that only one of those people has ever been nominated in this category before, which is P.T. Anderson. And he certainly deserves to be in it again this time around for Phantom Thread. Uh, and then on top of that, it's it's like an interestingly diverse category. There's a woman, which is somewhat rare for the Oscars. There's Jordan Peele, who's a black director. That's a pretty rare category for um, black people to have been nominated in. Del Toro is a Mexican director. So there's there's a lot of things going on in that category that make me hopeful about the direction that the Academy is heading. And I also think everyone in that category deserves to be in it. So I got really excited when I saw that category come up during nominations. Yeah, th- that was a category that I-, I was enthralled by as well. And for our listeners who maybe don't know this, uh, Greta Gerwig is only the fifth woman nominated for Best Director, and, J- and Jordan Peele is only the fifth black person nominated for Best Director. So that's that's kind of crazy. It's taken this long for the Academy to do that. But it, I think it's a good sign that their diversity initiatives are, are doing what they had hoped they would. Um, Oscar So White was just a couple of years ago. It certainly seems like it. I think a lot of us were a little concerned this year that in the acting categories, we would end up with entirely white categories again, and that didn't wind up happening. And also, I think 
maybe even more broadly, we're just seeing an interest in lots of different kinds of projects being nominated for for Best Picture, for instance. I mean, this is a really, really wide net that they've cast. I don't think there were any surprises about movies getting nominated for Best Picture, but it's good to see things that are as kind of commercial and obvious as something like The Post or Darkest Hour, which are both historical dramas that are pretty much crowd pleasers. But then There's other smaller, weirder films that landed in here, like Phantom Thread, even Dunkirk. I wouldn't call it a small film, but it's not one that I think you would necessarily know was going to be a Best Picture nominee from the start. And then, of course, Get Out. I'm just like thrilled that that movie has persisted all year because it really says something about, I think, the imagination of the Academy shifting. Uh, You know, what could a Best Picture look like? Could it be a kind of comedy horror film that comes out in February and is kind of biting social satire? And can that live alongside something like The Shape of Water, which is, you know, basically a fantasy romance about a woman and a and a fish man? So, I mean, who knows? You can never really tell from one year. Um, but last year was a bit of a shocker for everybody, too, with Moonlight winning. And so maybe we're actually seeing some trends towards people with more diverse life experiences and tastes and interests all sort of pitching in and more fully representing the year in film rather than the more kind of monolithic thing that the Academy used to be. I'll, I'll say this again. As someone who got into film from reading lists of old Oscar winners, it's, it's exciting to see the Academy trying some new things. So I, I'm going to ask you what's your favorite and least favorite of the Best Picture nominees. My favorite of the films is Lady Bird overall. It was also my number one film of the year. So that's that's an easy call. I don't know that it's my favorite to win. I have this like weird feeling that Get Out may have bigger chances than any of us Certainly than any of us thought last February. I don't think it's a huge shocker to say that I have really conflicted feelings about three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. But I can say that the only film I would be deeply disappointed if it won would be Darkest Hour, because this is just not, to me, a very remarkable film. I think Gary Oldman gives a classic Oscar bait performance. He is playing Winston Churchill. He certainly has worked very hard to be embodying Winston Churchill. But I feel like It's the least kind of original and maybe even the least interesting of the films. It certainly is the least interesting of the three films that involve the Dunkirk evacuation that came out in 2017, uh, which includes Dunkirk and also their finest. So I think Darkest Hour is the one I would least like to watch again. I have seen all of these movies at least twice, some of them much more than that. And I think they are all really quite good in their own ways. Well, my favorite of the nominees is even less likely to win, and that's Call Me By Your Name, which was my favorite movie of, of 2017, but the kind of uh, Sony Pictures Classics kind of bungled the release of that. So they ended up making less money than they probably should have and probably should have gotten more nominations. But I think it's a beautiful film, and I'm, I'm glad to see it nominated, even if it's probably just one of those happy-to-be-at-the-party nominees. I, I would agree with you that Darkest Hour is the weakest of the nominees. I just caught up with it last night, and it, it, it's perfectly fine. It's historical drama fodder, but at the same time... Some of it is just, it is bad. <laughs> There's a scene at the end that just kind of, and you wrote about it, it's, it's a historical nature in your review. I won't spoil it, but Churchill does something he didn't do in real life. I, I'm usually fine with that in terms of like making a better story for a movie. But in this case, it was so manipulative that it drew me out of the movie entirely. Yeah, it was, it was not fun. 
It's manipulative, and I feel like it actually undercuts a lot of what the film is about, which is about sort of statesmanship and leadership and the eloquence of Winston Churchill. And I don't mind having that in the film if it actually happened, but it seems to have no basis in fact whatsoever, which turns the movie into something I think that's contrary to what it wants to be about. Yeah, so I mean, there were places in that film that I really liked, and I really liked Ben Mendelsohn as the king. But other than that, I'd be happy when we can stop talking about that movie. Let's talk about one of the other nominees, which stands to win quite a few awards and has been hugely controversial, and that is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I think that you and I have kind of the the same read on this movie, which is that when I saw it, I I liked it, but I also was a little kind of thrown. (laughs) It was so beloved by so many people because I thought I had some big glaring issues with it. And these were not like the issues that have been pointed out by critics who are writing about uh, the issues it has with racial representation and other matters like that. But there's like weird tonal imbalances and things that kind of flew all over the place. And and you, Alyssa, you had a smart take on it where you talked about it as a Flannery O'Connor story. So I, I'd love you to tell me a little bit about how you view this movie and like how your relationship to it has changed since you first saw it. Yeah, I saw it right at the end of Toronto Film Festival in September. So people had seen it and talked about it, but there wasn't a lot of buzz perhaps yet. And I'm a big Martin McDonough fan. So I was really excited to see it. I came out and thought, oh, okay. Like I, it didn't stick with me. I thought Frances McDormand was great. It was very quotable. It had a lot of great moments, but I couldn't figure out really what it added up to. And when I reviewed it, I noted that it was basically a Flannery O'Connor story and it, it shows its hands. I mean, right at the beginning, Caleb Landry Jones's character is reading A Good Man is Hard to Find. So if you see a book in a movie, you know that that was placed there on purpose. And so it was pretty obvious. But it just felt really off. And, and the longer I sat with it, I was like, well, it definitely is made by somebody who doesn't know the place that they're working in. McDonough is from the UK and known kind of as an Irish playwright and writes those places very well. But it also felt like it was glib about that place, that this this film, to me, would have been much better if it had been set in, you know, Kilkenny or someplace in Ireland where some of the same things could come up. But it didn't have some of the weight of the place that felt like it was being used a little too lightly. And so I felt more and more uncomfortable. Then people started seeing it who weren't at the festival and being you know, pretty upset about it, actually. And it was helpful to read them and help that sort out my feelings. And I think in the end where I landed is that the film is trying to create an O'Connor-esque narrative, which is one that is kind of Southern Gothic, It's a story of a pretty broken up world where maybe there are moments of of uh, grace or empathy or compassion, whatever you want to call it. My feeling on this, though, is that McDonough's view of the world is much darker than O'Connor's, which is funny to say because Flannery O'Connor is not like all sunshine and daisies. But she has this sort of sense that people are governed by something bigger than themselves. And I don't see that um, in in McDonough's worldview at all. And I think it actually causes his stories to feel sometimes a little flat, especially if we're talking about the scene at the end where 
Francis McDormand's character and Sam Rockwell's character are embarking on a mission, and we're not really sure if they're going to follow through on it or not. But it read so many ways to so many different people, and some of them seem to seriously undercut what the film wanted to be about that I think is just kind of bad writing. Is there a movie that you were really sad wasn't nominated or wasn't more embraced by the Oscars? Yeah, The Florida Project. That's an extraordinary film. I don't know anyone who saw it and didn't come away kind of moved and even changed by it. And it also feels like a really great candidate for a film that would embody 2017 because it's so much about social class in America and also about sort of the effects of generational poverty on children. But it doesn't do it in a way that feels overly heavy or didactic at all. You you kind of finish and think, wow, that was a lovely, joyous film. And then you go back and think about it and it's actually really sad. But those two things coexist in a way that I think is just so rare to see in film. And it's sort of an American neorealism that I really loved. So Willem Dafoe got his nomination, but I wish there had been a lot more love for that film. And I hope people really seek it out. Yeah, I want to say one of the reasons they switched over the Oscars to up to 10 nominees, which they did in 2010, is because they wanted to nominate more blockbusters. They did it in the immediate wake of Wally and The Dark Knight being snubbed for Best Picture in 2009, and both of which should have gotten in over several films that were nominated that year. It felt like this was a good year to do that again. It felt like putting in, say, a Logan or a Wonder Woman or a Planet of the Apes or a Last Jedi, all of which received ecstatic reviews. That would have been kind of a cool thing to do, but alas... And as someone who enjoys a good blockbuster, I think it's too bad that they didn't find a bigger movie to put in. But at the same time, you know, both Get Out and Dunkirk were sizable hits. So it's not like they were avoiding successful movies altogether. And I think another film that, you know, could have landed in there would have been something kind of in the middle, like The Big Sick. I think that would have been a reasonable addition as well. It's original and it seems to be hitting in a lot of places that we're talking about right now as a country. And it's also sort of classic filmmaking. So it was a little baffling that they left that spot open. Well, there's a bunch of films nominated in, in categories like documentary, foreign language film, things like that. And I know that you've caught up with quite a few of them. Um, are, are there any gems there that people should seek out, especially some of the documentary nominees that uh, some of them, I believe, are on Netflix? Yeah, that's right. The documentary nominees are are solid, in my view. There were some better docs this year, but these are very solid. The one that I think most people should make sure they make a point of seeing is Strong Island. I'm pretty sure that's going to win. That documentary is really kind of remarkable. It's like a memoir. Um, The filmmaker is interested in the story of his brother who was sort of killed by a white man years ago on Long Island and there was justice was not served in that case. And so it's this really emotional film I think is totally worth seeing. Faces Places, I really like. It has gotten a lot of praise. But one that's actually really interesting at the tail end of the Winter Olympics is Icarus, which is also on Netflix. And that one's actually about the doping scandal. Um, But it's interesting because basically the filmmaker wanted to examine doping as a thing that happens in sports and sort of set out to make a very personal film about that, where he was going to undergo a sort of a doping regimen and see how his performance changed as an athlete. 
And through the course of it, he sort of discovered that this widespread state-sponsored doping was going on in Russia. And so this documentary is actually one of the major reasons that Russian athletes uh, have been competing as Olympic athletes from Russia during the Winter Olympics. And the fallout from this documentary has been pretty sizable. The doctor who's featured in it has actually had to flee to the U.S. and go into the Witness Protection Program. So it's a very interesting film and really quite engaging and surprising. Well, I watched the animated feature nominees, and, and Loving Vincent is one pe- maybe people haven't heard of. It's a beautiful film. I'm not sure it completely works, but it, it's fun to look at. And The Breadwinner, which which maybe people haven't heard of, but people who listen to this show have because we had the director, Nora Toomey, on. But it's such a wonderful little story about growing up, and it's set in Afghanistan right before the U.S. invasion of 2001. It's a beautiful movie about being alive in that sort of situation or being a child in that situation. I, I loved it. It was in my top 10. I, I hope people catch up with it. I think it's on I think it's on one of the streaming services now. I want to say Netflix. Anyway, we are coming into the end here, but I did want to point to the acting categories seem pretty locked up this year for Gary Oldman in The Darkest Hour, Francis McDormand in Three Billboards, Sam Rockwell in Three Billboards, and Allison Janney in I Tanya. Of these four, whether it's because you really prefer one of the other nominees or you just thought the performance was good, of those four, who would you be happy to see lose? Yeah. <laughs> I hate to say this, but I really hope Sam Rockwell loses to Willem Dafoe. <laughs> um, I think Willem Dafoe's performance is amazing in the Florida Project and very much against his type. And also, I would like people very much to be aware of the Florida Project. Yeah, and you know, like I liked Allison Janney a lot in I, Tanya, but if Laurie Metcalf or Leslie Manville won there, I would not be upset. <laughs> they had richer roles than Allison Janney, and they both did deeper work. Here's a final question. Who were some actors you wish had gotten in there that just didn't? I was hoping for Army Hammer <laughs> to get some recognition for his work in Call Me By Your Name. You know, there's always kind of a battery of performances that I wind up liking throughout the year. I really love Tom Hardy and Dunkirk and you know he's barely in it you barely see his face but I think what he does is just so beautiful so the, those kinds of bit performances almost never make it into the acting categories unless it's you know Michael Shannon and then I think the big one for everyone is Michael Stuhlbarg it's a complete travesty that he doesn't appear in this list not only was he great in Call Me By Your Name but he was great in two other films that are also nominated in some of these categories so Michael Stuhlbarg never gets enough recognition for his work. Well, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining me. And you can find both of our writings on the culture section of Vox. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, it'll be with Baby Driver's Julian Slater. Maybe it's a few nights before a big award show, not necessarily the Oscars. It could be any award show. And you need to make sure that your tuxedo gets there and you want to send it through the U.S. Postal Service. Why are you going to do this? You know, you have your reasons. I'm not going to judge. But here's the thing. You realize this at four in the morning. The post office isn't open, but you still want to get the right postage. That's where stamps.com comes in. You can get practically anything on demand nowadays. And like this podcast, you can listen to it whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. Now you can get postage on demand for those 4 a.m. tuxedo-related emergencies. All you need is stamps.com. With stamps.com, you can access all the services of the post office right from your desk. You can buy and print real U.S. postage for any letter or any package. It's all available 24 
hours a day, seven days a week. You click, you print, you mail, you're done. They'll even send you a digital scale, which you can weigh your letters and packages with and then print the exact amount of postage every time. I haven't personally used stamps.com to mail myself a tuxedo, but I could. That would be fun. But I do like that it allows me to get my postage whenever I need it because sometimes I, you know, I'm a, I'm a night owl. I like to do stuff in the middle of the night. And sometimes I just don't want to have to go all the way to the post office. And stamps.com is the best way to do that. So right now, you can try stamps.com for four weeks. It includes the postage and a digital scale. And you do that by going to stamps.com and then you click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage. You type in the promo code interesting. Use the code interesting at stamps.com. Again, stamps.com, radio microphone, interesting. You will never have to worry about how to mail yourself a tuxedo again. My guest today, Julian Slater, he is Oscar nominated for his sound work on Baby Driver. Julian, thank you for coming by. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I I have my own answer for this just from years of sort of being an Oscar person, but I always like to ask people who actually do the job, what what is the difference between sound design or sound mixing and sound editing? I haven't got a clue. I'm, st- I'm still waiting to find out. So an easy way to kind of describe the differences are sound design is coming up with hopefully unique and interesting sounds that didn't really exist before. And sure. in its most simplest of form, that's taking a sound and maybe running it through a sampler and slowing it down or speeding it up. Right. Or putting it through a chain of effects and just kind of experimenting with stuff and hopefully coming up with some new and bold and exciting sounds. Cool. As a sound mixer, you are taking a variety of tracks, whether it's and there are kind of two kinds of mixer. There's different. You can be a dialogue mixer who normally does dialogue and music, or there's effects and foley. I kind of switch between the two disciplines. But you're taking the sometimes hundreds of tracks and balancing them all together uh, to create a, a harmonious soundtrack that you know is is pleasing on the ear. And but also it's uh, it's not only pleasing on the ear, but it's 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 easy to understand the dialogue and doesn't sound too oppressive. The explanation I'd always given was. Sound mixing was generally stuff that was captured on set and then how that was balanced. And then sound editing was often stuff created in post. But like with the advent of digital, it sounds like that's changed a yeah. lot. Yeah. And and there is no hard and fast rule anymore. Sure. It, it's like people, people like me, sound supervisors, sound designers are more often than not when they mix, they mix their sound design. Right. I like to switch it around a bit and sometimes I've just done a project where I did the sound design for it but then I flip over to the left side of the desk and take care of the dialogue and the music and let someone else take care of the sound design. Right. Or say on Baby Driver, I did the music and the sound design because the two things were so integrated. Yeah, absolutely. So there is no hard and fast rules. So it's, it's kind of whatever you want it to be and whatever's right for the project. Are there still specialists who are really good at one certain aspect of the sound process? Yeah, the majority of people are specialists who concentrate just in one area. So it's quite rare. I'm quite a rarity in the fact that I hop around so much and do different things. Mostly the more traditional route is dialogue and music on the left-hand side of the console and effects and foley on the right-hand side of the console with regards to mixing. Baby Driver sounds like an interesting movie to do the sound on because the music is so integral to what's happening uh, on screen. And just talk me through that process of working with uh, the director, Edgar Wright, to like 
get everything synced up. It's, it sounds like it could have been a nightmare. It was. I mean, in the in the best possible way. Firstly, I should say that working with Edgar on all of his, I've been lucky enough to do all of his movies since okay. Shaun of the Dead, and each one of those are inherently challenging because Edgar is a director who understands how sound uh, can add to the overall cinematic experience. And sure. because he understands that, he's always pushing you in kind of new directions, whether it's the Scott Pilgrim or Shaun of the Dead. Baby Driver is obviously then pushing a certain kind of an avenue even further with the whole syncopation of the diegetic sounds to the music. And, you know, Edgar said himself, it's like that moment when you're in your car and you're listening to the radio and there's a song on, you happen to have your windscreen wipers on, and for like three or four seconds they're in syncopation with the, right. with the music. And he wanted to try and push that as far as he could. And we'd done it before in a in a very small way. We'd done it in the Don't Stop Me Now sequence in Shaun of the Dead with the pool cues and in the Roxy fight in Scott Pilgrim. But to try and do it over an hour and 52 minutes, I think it is, and to do it in a way that wasn't tricksy or didn't tire the audience out, that was kind of the challenge. So that, that, was, the, that was the overall note and the overall challenge. And then, of course, there's the specifics of how you actually do that Putting just a brake squeal in sync with the music is relatively easy once right. you figure out the, the the tone and the pitch and the timbre of it and the timing of it. But the constant stuff, say, like, you know, the car chase sequences where every police siren that's running throughout the whole sequence is is matched to the music over the course of three minutes, <laughs> that's when it becomes th- – that's one of the challenges of, of, of doing that in a way that is overt as well as covert – and, and doing it in a way that actually a lot of people don't appreciate. A lot of people think it's just the gunshots that are in sync on Baby Driver, but it's right. not. It's the engine revs, the dog barks, the trains over, going over points in the background. The whole movie has been sonically designed to work with the music at any given point in the in the movie. Right, right. What, what about the dialogue? Obviously, there's not a lot during some of those action sequences, those car chases, but is the dialogue sort of dialed in as well? Yeah, so if you take, for example, the Harlem Shuffle sequence, which is the second sequence in the movie, all those pieces of dialogue of people in the street and talking, they are all in syncopation with the music at the same time. The the genius of Edgar is it was, you know, he had pre-planned well in advance what he wanted to visually see in sync with the music and, Mm -hmm. and anything that was visually in sync, obviously, that was our job to make it work. And then there's, there's all the, the category of stuff that's off picture that you don't see. And with that in mind, every all the actors had earwigs, either earwigs in their ears, Ansel, um, when he has his earbuds in, those earbuds are actually playing the music that he's supposed to be listening to so right. that he can he can move and react and walk and sometimes talk in sync with the music. That's fascinating. The Harlem Shuffle sequence, that was loudspeakers around those three blocks when he's, when he's walking down the street so that every actor knew their cue point and knew when to speak in sync with the with the music. It sounds like you were maybe more involved in like pre-production than you normally would have been on something like this. Ye- yes and no. I mean because I've obviously got a relationship with Edgar, he yeah. gets me involved pretty early. I mean to the degree of he sends me the script well in advance. He asks uh, if there's any kind of technical you know technical issues how mm-hmm. to do it. Uh, and then whilst the shoot is happening, I don't really speak to Edgar because he's got a million and one things to, to, to figure out. Yeah. But say Naira Park, his producer, would call me and say, look, this is what we need to do tomorrow. You know, Can you give us a bit of a heads up on how we should tackle it or how would you like it? 
And that's the brilliant benefit of having a relationship with a director that you get to be involved earlier than you would normally do. And likewise, when I do come on, on board on a, on, a, on a movie, it's normally after the director's cut, which is 10 weeks of editing. Right. With Edgar, he gets me involved almost, I think, I think on this one it was week three. So I'm, I'm invo- involved much earlier than I would normally be. Right. Everything in the movie has to be choreographed, like you said. Mm-hmm. What kind of options did you have to like were there ways you could switch it up? Were there ways that you could play around with what yeah. was going to be there? Yeah. It is all an experiment. And you try different avenues. And quite often they don't work. In fact, every single sound is one of those avenues. So, you know, if you're going to make something musical, say, for example, there's a, a very simple example is there's a scene when Baby takes Deborah to dinner for the first time. And they and Edgar has shot it so that they're putting their fingers around the glasses in syncopation with the music that's playing. Mm. And the real sound, actually there wasn't really a real sound, and so we applied a sound and we wanted it to sound musical. But of course if it's too musical, it doesn't seem realistic as a real sound that you would have for the fingers resonating around the glass. So you pull that out and you try another one and then you make it a bit less perfect. Actually, if it's too perfect musically, you don't appreciate it as an actual sound effect. It becomes part of the music, which defeats which <laughs> defeats the whole point. Yeah, And it can sound musical, but it doesn't sound realistic as a sound effect. So every single sound in the movie had to have this kind of checklist of, does it work musically? Yes. Does it sound believable as a sound effect? Yes. Is it musical enough, but you can still distinguish it from the music? Yes. And then, then it goes into the mix. Yeah. And so every single sound in the movie had to go through that checklist. So yeah. it's it's all an experiment. What sequence ended up being the most challenging to to pull together? You know, I've been asked this before, and my, my stock answer is kind of everything. Because we had no roadmap of how to do stuff, the challenge was, A, how to do it, and how to do it in a way that wasn't tiresome to the audience. I do recall that the sequence where Baby has his is blown out by Buddy's gun and he becomes deaf was tough because we needed to convey that he had lost his hearing and so that he cannot hear Deborah speak to him. But we need to hear Deborah speak to us as the audience so that we can understand what she's saying. Yeah. So it's a question of how you convey deafness, but in a way, so you, you're hearing it from Baby's perspective and he cannot hear what she's saying, but as the audience, we need to hear what she's saying. So that took many months of different ideas and going round and round the the options and and it wasn't until very late on in the day that we settled on something that we were happy with. I had not really thought until talking to you about how much work has to go into even dialogue scenes in, in any movie, really. Yeah. <laughs> but when you are watching a movie somebody else has worked on, like what is great sound work to you? Like what is what is the hallmark of a great movie with great sound? I think it's. For me, it's two twofold, and it, it and it and it's those two disciplines of sound editorial, sound design, and sound mixing. When I hear a mix where you can tell it's something that has been the result of purely a good mix, not mm-hmm. necessarily just the ingredients, not just say great sounding spaceships, which in of itself I totally appreciate, but it's when you can tell they've done something like maybe taken out the score at that particular moment, or taken out all the sound design and utilize the tools on the dub stage to subtract as much as add stuff that's the that that to me is the stuff that that floats my boat i was very lucky to work with mike figgis on a movie called leaving las vegas Mm. a long time ago now and he taught me the uh he taught me the importance of 
quiet being just as important as loud. And that's something that stayed with me throughout my career. And, and I appreciate it when other people do that. And it's not just a question of piling on hundreds of... Because the, 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 the great thing about technology is you can have as many sound effects as you want in the mix and you can make the mix as loud as you want. Literally, we, 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 can, we have no audio police say, saying to us. In the old days, when it was printing to optical... Dolby would come in at the end and say, oh, that's too loud, you've got to turn it down. We don't have that anymore. Right. So it's the mixes that show not only restraint but creative restraint and offer light and shade as much as the, the bangs and the crashes. How do you make new car crash noises? Because that is a thing that we've been doing since the movies began, crashing things into stuff, mm-hmm. coming up with noises for it. Like, how do you How do you do that in a way that doesn't just become you know sonic wallpaper because we've heard it so many times again it's experimentation you know i did this i worked on this amazing movie a few years ago mad max Mm, and and the one of the challenges of that for me and and the whole set i mean i was a much smaller part in that in that machine was making individual cars sound unique so that then when they all played together if you've got like 10 vehicles caning it in the in the uh, in the desert you need to hear each single one when we kind of focus in on them mm-hmm. and so the challenge there is making them sound unique and identifiable so that if you close your eyes and just listen you can hear that the war rig is going and that's kind of the thing that you're always trying to do i feel like as a supervising sound editor and a sound designer one of my roles is to create something that is unique to that particular movie how you get to that is again it's that experimentation thing i would love to say that i can sit down if if i if i come to a a scene and it needs a particular sound i may have a kind of idea of how to achieve it but there are so many different software plugins and options that i have available to me it really is like kind of that thing about throwing paint at the wall and seeing what sticks to be honest with you i'm not the kind of person who that comes easily to and so I know after quite a few years of doing this, when I get stuck on something, I forget it, leave it, carry on to the next thing, and quite often it comes to me at 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm a terrible sleeper. And then suddenly I'll get this idea in my head at 3 o'clock in the morning and I'll scrabble to write it down and then I'll go in the next day and, and try it. And more often than not, that works. I don't know how that, what that says about my brain mm-hmm. space and my, how my brain works, but, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it works for me. What are, what are sounds, like when you're out walking around just in the world, hearing sounds coming in, what are sounds that are difficult to replicate in a cinematic area? It's not that they're difficult to replicate. It's the sounds that you need to be mindful to make sure you do replicate. Okay. So, for example, when you hear a car drive past and it's got a faulty fan belt, for example, or the wheels have got something wrong with them and they're making that kind of weird sound. Yeah. As, as Your general go-to is to lay a nice, clean car past, for example. And it's easy to forget that life is full of imper- imperfections. Yeah. And so that's what I try and do is try and remember that, that you know, try and give something its unique little lilt to it. And how you do that is not necessarily hard, but it's remembering to do that and to put in imperfections because life does not sound perfect the whole time. Sort of the complete opposite end of that question. Over the course of your long, successful career, like what sound that you have created purely through uh, sampling or whatever, uh, how are, you, are you proudest of? I kind of think I can answer that. I mean, there's been so <laughs> you many. Could do a couple. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like 
I can only answer that in movies, if you know what I mean. Like Scott Pilgrim, we I was just so immensely proud of and and for whatever reason, like the box office numbers did not do what everyone thought it would do. Yeah. But it was such a unique thing. This is way before the kind of Wreck It Ralphs and you know that how you know when eight bit became a bit more fashionable. Yeah. And each fight that was in the movie, we created its own sonic space. You know, the Roxy fight, the punches in the Roxy fight sound different to the Matthew Patel fight and the punches in the Lucas Lee and we made each Evil X sequence sounds sonically different to the other, which I was very proud of. Yeah, and of course, just Baby Driver. You know, work getting the chance to work on something that is sound centric, that has sound written into the DNA of the script, is you know, it's a dream for someone like me. Do you do research? Like when you're embarking on a project like this, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, not as much as I think some of my counterparts do. My feeling is. It's not a documentary, mm-hmm. and I'm a big proponent of if it sounds cool and it works, I don't really necessarily mind how accurate it is. Yeah. You know, for example, in Baby Driver, we recorded all those cars. We're on a racetrack where someone recorded all those cars again over the course of two days, and we got every which way you can think about getting them, and we got them in. And not a huge amount was actually used in the movie just because they didn't sound cool or I just didn't think they worked correctly. Mm-hmm. With regards to tinnitus, I did do some research with speaking to people who I knew who had tinnitus to try and identify what it meant for them, what it not not necessarily the sound of tinnitus, although I did try and put a pin in that, but also what it means to have tinnitus and what it does to you and and how it affects you re- with regards to the whole thing of like if you're sleeping at night and the more stressed you get. So yeah, I mean, there is a certain amount of if if I feel it's if it's necessary, I will obviously do it. Yeah. But equally, I remember going to the cinema to see a movie with a friend you know, a few years ago, and there was these jets, and you know they were they're a bit of an aviation buff, and they were like, well, "Those jets would never sound like that." <laughs> yeah, I know, but it's it's fantasy. It's you know, it's it's not real. Yeah, how like how far can you take that sort of dramatic license to be like? Um, I guess it depends on the project. Like, obviously, something like Dunkirk is going to have a very different requirement in that Uh regard than something like Baby Driver. Yeah. I mean, to that point, absolutely. Dunkirk is a historical thing that absolutely did happen. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, from what I know, the guys there did do a fair amount of research to try and, you know, capture what it was like. It's movie dependent, and it's also director dependent. Mm -hmm. What... Director A thinks is the right sound for this particular moment in time on his or her production is not what Director B will think. That's and that's one of the tricks of what my job is as a supervising sound editor. It's 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 easier with Edgar, even though you know it may be a new project. I kind of know how Edgar thinks. I know how his brain thinks about sound. But quite often I'm coming in cold. Um, you know, I did this Jumanji movie and I I hadn't actually worked with Jake, the director, before or even the two picture editors. And so I've, I'm coming in cold and I've got to try and try and zoom in on what their sensibilities are very quickly because there is no time for experiment. If, you're, if you've got a temp mix coming up, you've got to hit it. You've got to hit the nail on the head pretty quickly. So that's one of the one of the one of the challenges of what I do. And it's one of the great things. Every movie is different. You know, you go from ba- – I literally got off the plane on a Friday night from London having done seven months on Baby Driver and started Jumanji on the Monday morning. 
which is in it's, it's a it's a big challenge because you're you've got to kind of flush your brain out of all those sensibilities with that director and try and tune in to the sensibilities of a new director yeah. and one that I hadn't worked with at that time before. But that's the great thing about it is that it's two totally different sonic worlds and two totally different sonic playgrounds that you get to play in. Um, you know, that's that's the great thing about it. it. It never gets tiresome, never gets boring. You, you mentioned that you worked on Leaving Las Vegas, which is a, a movie I just, I love that movie. What is sort of, and that's a very big, very different movie from something like Baby Trevor. Mm-hmm. What's the biggest shift you've had to make between projects, between like, okay, this is going to be very sound heavy, this is going to be a little quieter? I would actually say um, th- what I've just mentioned, which was literally going from Baby Driver, going from seven, I mean, Baby Driver, I had to, I went back to London, left my family here. I came back occasionally for the odd week, but I spent seven months and I threw myself. And because, uh, because I didn't have my family there, I quite unhealthily absorbed myself in in baby and you know, I would get up on a Saturday morning and go into work when there was no one else there just because I didn't have anything else particularly to do then to go from that incredible kind of uh, intense uh, sonic experience and then go throw yourself into another one which was totally different it's you know they're two kind of you could say they're two big sounding movies but they are totally different Interesting. that I really did I did actually str- I mean I've, I've never admitted that to uh, Jake but the, for, the, for, the, for the first couple of weeks I struggled like mentally just because it was so different and the and the and the and the, the what was required was so different and the people I was working with had different sensibilities and normally if, you, if you're uh, if you're lucky and you're sensible about it you set yourself a decompress period of time to flush all that kind of information out, or I sh- I try to flush it out of your brain, even for a week, and then you kind of get back to ground zero and start from scratch again. But to go from one straight into the other was that was that was I found that to be quite tough. Interesting, yeah. interesting. You said obviously, Baby Driver, you were there very early on, but you said that often you come in when there's a director's cut, and mm-hmm. it's like ten weeks since production has stopped, things like that. Yeah. Um, how much can a thing change at that point? Like, how much can the movie change once you get involved at that point? Obviously, it's project dependent. It's project dependent. I like to think that, at the very least, my job is to give the director what he or she is envisaging. Envisaging. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> in their in their mind's eye. But that's the very least. At best, and what I try and do is to is to steer them in directions that they had never thought of before. So, for me. It is all up for grabs, or hopefully it is all up for grabs. And and hopefully if they're employing me, they're aware of what I can bring to the project and they're open to me making suggestions and to, um, uh, you know, helping steer the sonic ship. Yeah. My, my, next, my next gig, which is going to happen in a few months' time, the director is very keen on me coming on board almost as early as I am with uh, Edgar mm-hmm. for that very reason, so that I can be part of the process and... and, and and help start that building from the ground up. Yeah, Oscar season is full of uh, events for the nominees. Have Have you been in? Do you enjoy that sort of thing, or do you? Uh, could you take or leave it? Like going out and meeting people, and I think they have a luncheon and things like yeah, that. Yeah, it's been a it's been a really interesting period of time because I never assumed I was going to get the Oscar nominations, mm-hmm. but since Baby came out, I've had fellow professionals 
who I'd never even met, like and multi-Oscar winning professionals emailing me saying, just saw Baby Driver, just want you to know that if it doesn't get nominated, there's something wrong with the Academy. Mm. Or someone coming up to me saying, get your tux ready. <laughs> and, and which is which is lovely, but it, but it's also very nerve-wracking. You know, right. I, I, I spend most of my time in a dark room and creating noises and not necessarily being in the public eye. And then the first thing that I did, which was a QA and a uh, at the Academy with Cameron Crowe and Edgar, mm-hmm. and I was, I was almost shaking. I'd literally, it was my first thing that I'd done. There was, I think, like eight, 900 people there. And afterwards, a friend of mine said, oh, you know, you've got you to enjoy this ride because it may never happen again. I'm like, I can't enjoy this. It's just so nerve wracking. <laughs> but but su- subsequent to then, I have learned to enjoy it. And, and I've learned to... Gary Oldman said something in a podcast a few weeks ago, which I actually spoke to him about at the luncheon. I, oh, wow. I grabbed him, which was, he said, I've been doing this for 40 years. And... I've learned that you have your, you get five minutes in the sun and then it can go away again and it may or may not come back. And I've learned to when I get those five minutes in the sun, enjoy it because you never know when or if it's going to happen again. And I've taken that to heart and I, I, I am enjoying it. It's great. It's great. It's great to have the recognition, but it's also great to talk about one's craft because yeah. quite often or not, you know, people don't really understand what is involved with sound design or sound mixing. So to be a kind of advocate and a, someone who can use a loud hailer to discuss it with people and share, you know, get an insight into it, that's, that's, that's for me, it's great. I'm really enjoying doing it. In addition to Gary Oldman, have you met any people you were really excited to meet or psyched to meet over the process of this Oscar season? God, there's so many. There is so many the luncheon was crazy because it's you know it's, and everybody, I, it's, yeah. it's everybody and you're all there's no pressure they're not announcing anything so everyone's very relaxed about it and the great thing is you get to wear this badge that says Julian Slater and then it will say what you're nominated for so you can instantly just kind of check someone out and see that they you know I, I, I met the guys who wrote the song for Coco and they also did Let It Go and it's great to talk to them about you know how much my sons love the the, the score for Coco yeah. and Gary Oldman and I didn't get to speak to Meryl Streep. I really wanted to speak to Meryl Streep, but yeah. she, I didn't. But I'm going to try and uh, tackle her at the at the ceremony. <laughs> well, Julian, thank you so much, and good luck. Thank you so much. So, listen, I've been married for approximately five million years, so I don't know how online dating is. When I got married, we still talked to each other on the phone. What a horrible thing. Why did, why did people ever talk to each other on the phone? But it, what I hear from my friends when who have tried online dating is it is often just the worst. You get lazy text messages, you get dead-end conversations, you have random matches that don't turn into dates, and you can't get to know someone just by looking at their picture. If you look at my picture, I look a lot more cheerful than I actually am. So here's the thing about eHarmony. It's unlike many other online dating sites, and it takes the steps that other dating sites don't to find you a more compatible match. They're built to help you find lasting, meaningful relationships. They're not a shallow hookup site. They have helped over a million people find their perfect match. They use years and years of science of data and of psychological research to send you the right matches. They bring compatible people together. So right now, my listeners can get a free month, yes, a whole free month with eHarmony when they sign up for a three-month subscription. You enter my code THINK at checkout. Stop waiting and start your journey to a satisfying, meaningful relationship. It can be fun to play around with online dating apps, but when you're ready to fall in love with someone and have a meaningful relationship, there's one app built to bring you real love. 
eHarmony. Come see how eHarmony can change your life. Again, you go to eHarmony.com to get started. You enter my code THINK at checkout. That's a whole free month with a three-month subscription. THINK at checkout, eHarmony.com. Find love, people. My guest is Tatiana Regal. She is Oscar-nominated for editing for the film I, Tanya. Tatiana, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you. It's nice to be here. So I kind of wanted to start with, uh, this is the thing I'm doing with with all the nominees I'm talking to. What Define for me what you think film editing is and like somebody who's just watching the Oscars and has never heard of it, like like what they can think of as what that might be. Mm, good question. We get the film that they've shot. I start I start working the day that they start shooting, basically. And the next day I start getting dailies. I watch the dailies and I assemble them and then show them to the director and get the whole film assembled. And we go from there. But basically what it really is, is it's working with performance, with pace, with story, with emotion, to come up with a wonderful film that uh, tells a good story. Great, great. C- can you give us an example of like a choice you made or something you did in editing on I, Tanya that ended up sort of affecting how the film played? Oh, well, there's about a million choices that were made <laughs> during that whole process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the thing, the interesting thing with I, Tanya was, was uh, I think, the general tone of the movie. I think that was the thing that fascinated me the most, even from when I first read the script. When I first heard about the story, when the director called me, I was like, hmm, you know, who wants to hear a story about Tanya Harding, especially so so much later? And I was concerned about, you know, what kind of story it would be. Would it be just sort of a tabloid type thing or yeah, who knew? And then I read the script and I just was absolutely amazed and I completely understood what was going to happen tonally in the film. It's a very, very interesting story uh, about um, that's very sad and very tragic and yet very funny and from an editor's perspective, that's a fascinating thing to attempt, to walk that line, uh, to go back and forth between that and to hold people's emotion and yet still keep them engaged with pace, keep them engaged with humor, and also deal with a very heavy subject of abuse. And so there's a lot of stuff in the film that was just really interesting to work on. Right, right. That's interesting. So what's what's kind of a, like a misconception people have about, about your job? Like for a long time, I thought before I, I like really got into writing about film and TV, uh, for a long time, I thought editing was just like you took all the footage and like you picked the best footage and that was like the extent of the job. So like what's a misconception that you have that you hear from people about what you do? That's it. Exactly. A lot of people think we just cut out the the bad parts, the mistakes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, no, it really is. It's been called the final rewrite. It's been said that that's where the film is really made. It, it's an incredibly important part of the process. And it's also a really fun part of the process because for me as an editor, you know, when a director's on the set, they have a hundred people clamoring for their um, attention and time and asking questions and this and that. For me, I get into the cutting room with the with the director and I have their full attention, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a day for months on end. And we really work together side by side in this wonderful collaboration to come up with what the film is going to be. It is. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of patience. But I think the thing that's so interesting that I think people don't realize is how much manipulation we do. 
you know, we're given obviously amazing, amazing footage to work with and wonderful performances and, you know, terrific scripts and all of this sort of stuff. But still, when it comes in the door, it's very raw and it's every angle and it's often a much, much slower pace than you ultimately want. And so it's similar to writing in that you have to go through, you know, when you first write a a story or a paper or whatever you're doing, you're going to read it back to yourself and discover that certain things are repetitive, certain things are unclear. You want to put this paragraph up towards the beginning and this sentence back towards the end. And that's all the manipulation and movement that you do. And we do the same thing in editing. We're moving scenes around. We're using only half a scene or we come into the scene halfway through perhaps, or we cut out the middle of a scene. Uh, Sometimes we cut out whole characters uh, that are redundant um, in some way. And and then again, we just work internally within each scene and within the entire film on pace, on emotion, on structure, on tone, um, to try to come up with um, a, a film that we're all happy with. Right, right. You've worked with Itania director Craig Gillespie on his, I believe, all of his other films. Uh, what, what do you like about that working relationship? Yes, I met him actually on his second film, okay. um, which was Lars and the Real Girl. And so we've done now five features and one television pilot together. So we've been working together for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. I love working with him. It's it's so wonderful. I mean, I just, I can't even tell you. I think he's a an incredibly strong director. I think he has a really good point of view. And I think the thing that I enjoy working with him so much is that I think he really sets a high bar. We're always trying to make it better and better and better. Mm -hmm. And through the collaboration, we really build off of each other. You know, we have enough similarities that we are definitely trying to make the same film together. And we have enough differences that we can be a good sounding board for each other and push each other um, to always look for a better and better uh, solution to anything that's coming along. I love working with him. Oh, great. So an Oscar nomination is the, is the culmination of a career for a lot of people. Can, can you look back at kind of your earliest days, like when you were just starting out? What, what drew you to editing and, and what was kind of your career trajectory from there? Yeah. Well, I loved movies. When I was growing up, I just, I loved, I loved going to see films. I would go over and over again, and it was just great fun. And I knew that I wanted to be involved in films somehow. I didn't know how. And so, you know, my father was a college professor. My mother was a school teacher. There was nobody in my family that was in entertainment at all. So I didn't know what it was. But I did grow up in Los Angeles, and I did see them shooting all over the neighborhoods. And whenever I would see them shooting a movie or a TV show, I'd always stop and watch. And I was fascinated by it. But I quickly realized that most of the stuff on the set is not very interesting unless you're the director or the director of photography. And so I kind of went through and when I when I graduated from college, I went I got a degree in political science. I moved back to Los Angeles and I went through, you know, what I thought all of the jobs were on a film and slowly began to cross them off either because I was not interested in them or didn't think I would be particularly capable of doing them. I'm definitely not an actress. I'm not a writer. I am not an executive. And somehow or another, that left post-production, which 
happily and fortunately turned out to be a perfect mixture of a very, very creative job and a very, very technical job. And that really suited my personality. It sort of worked both sides of my brain. The technology keeps me very interested all the time. I feel like I'm always learning and I really enjoy that. And the creativity obviously is just, it's, it's a wonderful, a wonderful thing to do to come to work and just try to be creative. I mean, that's a dream. So that's how I started in film. Once, once I started doing it, of course, then you start to admire certain people in the business. You start to hear about uh, certain filmmakers and you want to work with them. And, you know, then obviously you become aware of the, you know, when I was a kid, I watched the um, Oscars all the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you then start to have a dream of that. And, I'm still, I have to say, a little bit in um, a dream stage now. I can't believe that it's actually happened. I'm, I'm pinching myself on a daily basis uh, ever since I heard. Well, I want to talk a little bit about some of the specific edit- editing challenges in Itania. And one of them is there are only like a handful of people on this planet uh, who can land those skating jumps. And Margot Robbie, as good of an actress as she is, is not one of them. And I'm wondering, like, how you sort of blended together the footage of, like, skate doubles and then, you know, uh, Margot Robbie's face occasionally in close-up. And just, like, how you built those sequences so it felt convincing. That was really, really fun part of the job. You know, with, with certain films, editors often can get typecast into doing a certain type of film. There can be a drama person or a comedy person or an action person or whatever. And the really nice thing about this particular film is it had a little bit of everything. Um, There are quiet, dramatic sequences, and then there are these terrific skating sequences. And they were just a blast to work on. Uh, They were obviously originally choreographed based on her choreography of her skating sequence of her skating performances and then the director worked with the cinematographer and with the skating coaches and stuff like that to choreograph what they wanted to do and how they wanted to shoot it uh, which is very interesting also because they had all kinds of big ideas about you know cranes and steady cams and all of this and then one one day one of the camera operators came up to the director and said you know I can skate really well what if I just skate it and so they did some tests, and so they got a lot. It was a tremendous, tremendously fortunate because it, it brought a lot of energy and vitality and movement and all kinds of stuff to the scene that they probably would have struggled to get otherwise, and that just happened to work very well. But Margot trained. She skated a little bit, but very little. Right. But she trained for about five months, and she got pretty good. I mean, obviously not an Olympic-level athlete, nothing that wouldn't have taken her another several decades to get to. So then it became a question of figuring out how they were going to cross back and forth from her to the double. And so that was planned out a lot with with the DP and the director and then also the the choreographer that was doing the um, skating. And then with me and the visual effects people. And so we tried to find those moments where it was going to be easy to do some of these seamless edits that kind of go, and we literally switch within a shot uh, digitally, but we switch from one person to another. And then with other shots, we had to put, we did head and face replacements to the the double and put Margot's head and face on her. And even beyond that, because there have only, I think, been six, and I think now maybe seven people who've been able to do this triple axle, we couldn't find anybody even a professional skater that could do that. 
So we had to do that digitally as well. Hmm. Well, uh, that's a, that's a, that kind of leads into another question of mine, which is how often do you work closely with with a visual effects department to get those sorts of sequences just right? I, I imagine it has to be fairly often because you're both working on the post-production process. Yes, absolutely. We work very closely with them. On certain films, we work with them uh, even before we start shooting. For example, another film that I did with Craig was called The Finest Hours, and that I started about a month early uh, before they even began shooting any of it. We had what they call previs, which are, you know, pre-visualizations. They're sort of rough animations of what they want to shoot so that everybody knows, everybody going into production knows exactly what these shots are going to be uh, because they will ultimately be made up of so many elements. And so it, it helps with imagination. It helps with lens size, you know, the choreography of the shot, what's going to happen. And so I'm getting these pieces and I will edit them together and come up with different things and have conversations with the director and then maybe say, oh, you know, we could also use this shot or that shot. And so we have it sort of all planned out, not that dissimilar to what an animated film might be in the very early stages. And then once they start shooting it and getting all the elements together, we have very close contact with the visual effects people and building those things, which can take, like on um, uh, Finest Hours, we were on that close to a year and a half wow. doing visual effects for that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, our schedule on Itania was much shorter, uh, and none of that start- stuff was started earlier. They did scan Margot and do things to prepare for these head and face replacements before I actually even got on, I think. But yes, it's it's nice. And it's a, they're really, you know, visual effects people are incredibly creative, and the technology is just changing and growing so, so fast. We used to be so tied to the film, and you had, you could only work with the blocks that you were given. And now there's all, you can change the timing and speed of stuff within a, within a shot. If, if an actor is taking a little bit too much of a pause, we can speed that up or sometimes do the reverse, slow it down a little bit within the shot rather than just within the edits. The world is, is open to what you can add in terms of imagination and, and uh, it's fun. Just looking at, at the scope of your career, you, you started out working on, on physical film. And I'm wondering what you, you talked about what's been fun mm-hmm. about digital and working with digital. And I'm wondering, what, what do you miss anything about film? Is there is there something about film that you miss? Because some people in the industry do and some people just just don't. Yeah, I think there are lots of things about it that are that are nice. I mean, I like the look of it. We actually shot I, Tanya, primarily on film, most of it. The only thing that wasn't shot on film was the interview sections, the actual on-camera interviews. And there was some of the skating that was shot digitally, the um, ultra slow motion stuff that was shot on the Phantom. But everything else was shot on film, uh, which which was nice. And I think it gives it a really, particularly for that film because of the time period, it gives it, you know, a time stamp. But I like the look of film. And I miss, I have to say, in the cutting room, I miss the physical aspects of working on film. Yeah. Now it's become a very sedentary job, and uh, I burn almost no calories at work, sadly. <laughs> but when I used to, you know, have to lift and move and rewind and do all kinds of stuff. So um, it's aging me, this digital stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier uh, the, uh, balancing the tonal, uh, the tonal elements of the film, which has comedy and drama and, and some action and sports movie stuff. 
and even a little crime drama in there. How much work did that take to find that to like, especially I'm thinking of the, the scenes when there is abuse and like the scene will be funny. And then there's a sudden moment of physical abuse that snaps you out of it. Like how, how, how much work did you have to do to sort of find that rhythm? Yeah, that took a bit of time. We were very, very concerned about a few things with that. Um, number one was the, the thing about this story is that it is told from these different perspectives. The writer went and interviewed both Tanya Harding and Jeff Galuli. They had wildly contradictory points of view about everything with the exception of Tanya's mother. They agreed about with her, which is amazing. They both, I'd, I'm assuming you, you, you've you seen it, so you, you know, and for the listeners, the mom is a pretty, pretty heinous, abusive person. Jeff is too, but the mom was pretty horrible. But they both agreed on, on that. But other than that, they agreed on nothing. So it's told, the story is told from this perspective of unreliable narrators they completely dis- di- disagree with each other and there's something that happens when you're cutting a story and you're not sure or you know who's telling it or whether or not they're telling the truth or who to believe it was really very interesting to do the, the other thing and the what was very important was um this is Tanya's story you know and it was important that she get her point of view ac- across and the writer wanted to to offer that as well again this is it tells both sides so this is not trying to um say that Tanya wasn't guilty of anything or you know any of these sorts of things you know a lot of people have opinions about the story that are very very strong but this is an opportunity for her to tell her side of the story and Jeff to tell his side of the story and then for the audience to come up with whatever they want to come up with having said that there there was a lot of abuse that that happened in her life and it is really sad and very tragic and Craig really did not want to sugarcoat that at all because it informs who she is and who she became and the decisions that she made having said that it would be a pretty bleak story if it was just about that and the rest of the story by its nature has this amazing absurd element that is almost unbelievable we had a lot of screenings early on in the process and people who may not have been familiar with the story or had forgotten or sometimes just people who were born after it happened didn't know and they often had these comments were like whoa that's that character's a little too much that bodyguard you know that can't be possible he didn't do that and I found myself and everybody else did on the film saying, you know, go home, Google it. That's for real. These people are for real. And it's amazing. And so, you know, that the those elements of the story that just this absurd, crazy story juxtaposed with this really tragic, sad, abusive story of what happened to Tanya, then you, by nature, you are going back and forth between these just two crazy elements of emotion. And so, for example, there's a scene in the film where uh, Tanya and her mother are having dinner and it escalates into an argument and they get into a, you know, a big fight as they often did. And uh, the, Levana, the mother, ends up picking everything up off the table and just heaving it across the table at her daughter. And one of the things that she picks up is a knife and throws it at her. And it stuns the audience. Well, it stuns the character. It stuns Tanya, and it stuns the audience. There's always a huge gasp in the theater. Um, 
And it's a very, very tense moment. And it just builds and builds and builds until this knife throw. And then they're just, there's a standoff. They look at each other and neither knows what the other is going to do. And the audience has no idea what they're going to do. And I cut back and forth between them and I expand this tension as much as I can. You don't know what the characters are going to do. They don't know what each other are going to do. The audience doesn't know. And then you stretch it and stretch it and stretch it until it's basically almost ready to break. And then we break it with a uh, a joke, an interview where Lavana says, you know, well, all families have ups and downs. And it's this huge release of tension uh, that allows the audience to then regain their composure a bit and then move on and move forward through that and on to the next thing. And that happens, you know, over and over again in the film where there are these really, really tough scenes that involve domestic violence that are then popping back and forth between that and just the outright absurdity of of the story, which it makes it a, a wild ride. Yeah. So, so did working on this project give you any new information or new feelings or like, did it change your mind about Tanya Harding? Who's this sort of infamously reviled figure? It didn't change my mind at all. No, I don't really have an idea of, of really what happened. I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows the truth besides, besides Tanya and Jeff. I think though that the important thing about this film is that I think it gives you a it gives you more information than we ever got through the media then and I think that that is a theme in the film that is is important particularly now you know there's a lot of stuff happening in media wise where we get little bits and pieces and tweets whatever and we're all forming opinions based on very little information and I think it's important to stop take a step back try to understand somebody, whether or not you agree with what they did or even believe what they did, but you can understand a little bit more about who they are, where they came from, and why they may be doing uh, what they do. And I think it's just important to try to understand people are not all good or all bad. I think that's what makes us all pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, just finally, uh, I'm recording in Los Angeles and Tatiana is in Berlin and you, you've been there for a while. I'm wondering, did you were you able to get to some of the pre-Oscar, like the luncheon and some of those other events they hold for the nominees? I did. Yes, I flew back to Berlin. I'm I'm uh, I am suffering extreme jet lag right now, um, <laughs> happily. <laughs> but yeah, I flew. I started a new job here in Berlin. I I came here for about a little less than a week. And just when I was about on Berlin time, I flew back to L.A., went to the Oscar luncheon, which was just as amazing as everybody said it would be. It's, it is so much fun. I was at a table with Steven Spielberg, Octavia Spencer, Greta Gerwig, J.R., who did the Faces Places documentary. It was, just, it was phenomenal. It really It's like a dream. It's wild. And then I came back to Berlin, and I'm turning around and going back for the uh, Oscars. I, unfortunately, I have missed a few parties, but i got to pay my mortgage, so oh well. Well, Tatiana, thank you so much for joining us, and good luck at the Oscars. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. I Think You're Interesting is the podcast that won the Oscar for Best Podcast. Yes, they give an Oscar for Best Podcast. Uh, I have it in my house. No, you can't see it. No, I'm not going to provide any proof that it exists. But 
Just just take it on my word. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. And uh, Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Mo and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulrich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and studio are both thanks to P3 Post in beautiful Hollywood, California. This week's episode was edited by Bridget Armstrong and Brandon McFarland. Thanks, guys. It was in a lot of pieces. You made it happen. And uh, our recording engineer, as always, is Che Brooks. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you get your fine podcasts. It helps us get the word out. It helps us get great guests. It helps us just keep the show rolling and if you want to leave a comment with me that you don't want to put on uh, a review though why would you want to do that we read the reviews we love the reviews you can email me at todd at vox.com or you can email the show at ity.podcast at vox.com that's itye.podcast at vox.com you can also tweet at me whatever you want at tvoti that's tvoti We're going to be back next week with the creators and stars of the Comedy Central show Corporate, which is one of my favorite new comedies in many, many years. I think you're going to love the discussion. We talked about uh, the the bleakness of work life, but also sort of the what's funny about that. So we'll be back then. And until then, be sure you have your acceptance speech prepared because you never know when you might have to give one.